Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Genesis chapter 6. I'm just going to read the first uh, few verses before we get into uh, the rest of the study. But it says there in verse 1, Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply in the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his day shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then I love verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the first mention in the Bible of grace. And uh, notice the following order. We'll get into it as we go into verses 9 and forward. But first, it's it, Noah finds grace. And then he's declared righteous and perfect. You know, I am so thankful that... Uh, that God didn't uh, first tell us how good Noah was and all the things that he did, and then he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I think the important, the, the order of this is important. Think about it. If that order had been reversed, <laughs> there'd be no hope for me, and probably for you either, right? Probably wouldn't be any hope. So it's very significant, I think. First grace. And then verse 9, it says, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God, and Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So we're told a few things here about Noah. First, Noah was a just man. What does that mean? Well, the word literally means righteous, or right, or correct or lawful. He was a lawful man, another lawful man. In other words, he was submitted to God's rule and God's authority. He was obedient to God. We're also told that Noah was perfect in his generations. Guys, has any of your wives told you you're perfect? Probably not. Maybe when you were dating, right? But uh, you were the perfect guy. But now after you've been married a while, you're, you're not so perfect, right? What does that mean? Noah was perfect. Well, he wasn't sinless, because no one's sinless. We know that, right? The Bible tells us no one is sinless. Or no one, yeah, no one is sinless. Um, but what does that mean? Well, the word perfect means complete, sound, unimpaired, innocent. Now, as we talked about last week, about, about all this demonic activity that's described in verses 1 through 4, it's possible that it's referring to the fact that, that Noah wasn't corrupted by this, this, this demonic ac sexual activity that was going on during that time. But I think it probably refers more to his morality. Um, it's interesting, that word perfect, in over half the occurrences of this Hebrew word in the Old Testament, it describes the condition of an animal that's to be sacrificed. Well, how can someone who's not sinless, someone who's a sinner, be considered innocent or complete or unimpaired at the same time? How is that possible? 
And the only thing I can think of, it's the same way that Paul tells Timothy in the New Testament uh, that the elders of the church should be blameless and above reproach. An elder, I mean, they're not perfect. I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner. Um, But I should be blameless and above reproach. In other words, a person who, although he's a sinner, they have a sin nature, yet they've dealt with their sin on the cross, the cross of Calvary. They've dealt with their sin, and they continue to walk in a way that they're not continuing in sin. You know, they're, they're dealing with it. Something happens and you repent of your sin and you, and you move on. And you allow the Holy Spirit to do that sanctifying work in you. And I think that's what it's referring to. <clears throat> Excuse me. Listen, the flood, it wasn't a local flood. And we're going to talk about that because that's one of the things. I had a coworker once. He's like, ah, the flood. No, that was, just a, that was just a local flood. And he was a believer, by the way. Um, but it, uh, we'll discuss more later. But listen. The problem that God is addressing wasn't local. It was global. And uh, because he says all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And what's interesting to me, if you think about that, Noah's a living example that a person doesn't have to be a product of their environment. You know, we all say, well, I, you know, I grew up in a rough home and I had, a, you know, I never had the opportunities others had. And that's the way I am or that's the reason why I am. Noah lived in a time where everyone was wicked. All flesh had corrupted their ways. He was the only one who was righteous. You know, when I was first married, um, I hate, I, I'm actually embarrassed to bring this up, but I had a real problem with using profanity and swearing and stuff. Something would happen, and pff, the words would just flow out of my mouth, and, and I felt terrible. I had little kids at the time, and, and Teresa like, oh. and I'd say, well, I'd always blame it on my coworkers. I, I, you know, I work with these guys. They've got the rough, and I did. They, they used had the roughest language. Every fourth word was, you know, the F word or whatever. It was, and I said, it just, it, if I didn't, it's those guys, man. I just, I'm working around them. I hear it all the time. It just comes out. And uh, you know what? Looking back at it now, it was a cop out. It really was a cop out. Because think about this: Noah was the only righteous man. Everybody else was wicked, and yet he was able to walk uprightly with the Lord. So it's possible for you and I to live righteously when no one else is around us. It's possible. For the, for the believer in Jesus Christ, it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's only by that sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. That's the importance of hearing Sandy Adams' message next week on the Holy Spirit because he's going to talk about that stuff. But it's possible to live righteously when no one else around you is, is righteous by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, let's continue on here. Verse 13. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. What's significant to me in this verse 13, not only is God going to destroy all flesh, that's definitely significant, but notice that he says, I'll destroy them with the earth. I want you to pay attention to that, with the earth, because we're going to talk about that a little bit later on. Verse 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. The word ark, it literally means a basket. It's only used twice in the Bible. First, the ark of Noah, which we're talking about today. But it also refers to the ark, uh, not the ark of the covenant. That's a totally different word. But the basket in which Moses was put in when he was set into the Nile River. That's the same Hebrew word. In both cases, people are rescued from water. It's only two times in the Bible it's used. 
Now, this ark is to be made of gopher wood. Nobody knows. It's not like gophers, or but nobody knows what this gopher wood is. Some Bibles translated as cypress. Uh, I've heard cedar. We don't really know. So there was some kind of a wood, gopher wood. And it's to have rooms. Now, that word rooms, it literally means nests or cells. Um, and then finally, he says it's to be covered inside and outside with pitch. Now, that word covered is a significant word. It's the word kafar. And it means to cover, which is where it's translated here. But it also means to purge or to make an atonement. It's used many times in the Bible. It refers to the atonement of a sacrifice, to make reconciliation. And when we look at this from a spiritual aspect, the ark really is a picture of Jesus Christ, if you think about it. As the ark was covered over to protect it from the waters of judgment, so too you and my, our sins are atoned for, they're covered over, and, per, and we're protected from God's judgment. It's interesting to me that the ark was covered within and without. I can understand the without, right? You make it watertight. You, get, you put this bitumen or whatever it is that they put on it, you know, tar, whatever it was that that pitch was, they, they covered the outside of the boat with this. And, uh, but why the inside? Why would the inside? Well, uh, you know, people have different theories of why, but it would definitely preserve the ark. It's definitely preserved the ark. And it's interesting because down through the centuries, even down into recent time, people have cited something that looks like the ark. There's some kind of a a man-made large, looks like a vessel of some sort on Mount Ararat in Turkey. So it's interesting to me, could it be possible that God wanted that ark to be preserved and that at some point in the very near future, I think, it's going to be revealed to mankind as a lesson, as 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 a testimony of judgment that's coming. It's quite possible. Verse 15, and this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. It's width 50 cubits and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and you shall finish it to a cubit from above and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower second and third decks. What's a cubit? We talked about it last week in reference to the giants. A cubit was generally the, from your fingertip to your elbow. And it's generally around 18 inches, although it depends. There are different countries in the Middle East had different lengths for cubits, but it's generally about 18 inches. With the thought of 18 inches to a cubit, this arc would have been about approximately 450 feet long. That's about one and a half football fields long. It would have been 75 feet wide and it would have been 45 feet high, about as high as a five-story building. It would have been barge-like. See, there was no need to steer. There's no mentioning of steering. There's no mention of navigating. It just needed to float. That was its purpose, just to float. But it's interesting because those, those, the measurements of this, of this arc, it's made uh, by a ratio of six to one. And imagine that it just turns out that the six to one ratio in building ships is about the best kind of ship that you can construct with a six to one ratio, the length and the width. 
Very interesting. I was doing a little bit of research on the flood and on the ark and, and different things, and I came across this safety study that was done in Korea, and they took all this information that the Bible produces about the ark, and they plugged in all these factors about boat building and stuff, and uh, they came up with some results, and, and it's on the internet. You can find it. Um, but basically, they said that the ark, as it was designed, was practically impossible to capsize practically impossible. In fact, they said it's 13 times, it would have been 13 times more stable than the standard of safety required by the American Bureau of Shipping Rules. And they said it was built so it could sustain waves or swells over 98 feet high. And you say, you know, when you think of a flood, you think of just rising waters. Well, as we get into it, it was the, the, the water, it wasn't just rising waters. This was a, a tremendous, well, we'll get into it more, but it was a tremendous upheaval. And uh, so this ark was built to withstand just the, the tremendous torrents and the, and the upheaval of water and everything. But consider this, the ark had many rooms in it, but it only had one door in its side. And it provided a means of escaping judgment. Remember I said earlier, the ark's like a picture of Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus said, in my father's house are many mansions. Ark had many rooms. Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And you know, if you, you speak those words to an unbelieving family member or maybe a coworker, what, sometimes you'll hear, oh man, that, you're just being too narrow. You mean Jesus is the only way. You know, he's just one of many paths to God. Have you ever heard that before? I've heard it several times. Think about this though. When the flood came, if you had time, and I think that's skeptical, but if you even had time to try to get inside of the ark once the flood began, can you imagine someone, there? there's the door, and they go, ah, that's too narrow. I don't want to go through that. There's got to be another way into this ark. No, there's only one door. There's only one way. There's only way, one way. Uh, God has provided you and I a way to escape his judgment, but it's only through the door of Jesus Christ. Verse 17 and behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy it from under heaven, to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing on the earth after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive, and you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten and you shall gather it to yourself and it shall be food for you and for them now you know we get these pictures of noah's ark you know if you get the buy little toy noah's ark you know there's just it's kind of a kind of a weird shaped boat and it's got a giraffes and an elephant and a hippos and stuff and 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 a lot of people go how could you fit into this ship elephants giraffes hippos i mean what about the dinosaurs you know um it all depends on the definition of kind. It all depends on the definition of kind. First of all, no fish is mentioned, right? Because they, they, they don't need air to breathe, right? They're in the water. So they probably weren't included on the ark. There was no uh, aquariums or anything like that. Um, so it was only flying creatures and only air-breathing land creatures, possibly insects, but maybe not. 
Can you imagine? I just had this picture. You know, Mo, no, uh, not Moses. He wasn't born yet. But Noah's on the ark, you know. It's getting kind of warm. It's getting kind of muggy in the ark. And all of a sudden, he's like, ah, oh, man, who brought the mosquitoes on board? You know, <laughs> it's like, why didn't they leave them off the ark? <sighs> so who knows? But of land vertebrates, there's 33,000 species. And then, you, of course, if you include a few thousand more for fossil species that have been discovered. So 33 plus a few thousand species of land vertebrates. The average size of a land vertebrate is less than a sheep. So half of them are less than a sheep, or average of them are less than a sheep. Now, taking the measurements of the ark, the, the, the volume of the ark was 1.5 million cubic feet, which equals about 520 railroad boxcars. So if you can think of 520 railroad boxcars, that's how much volume of space was inside the ark. Now, 520 railroad boxcars are capable of holding 125,000 sheep. So now, going back to considering the kinds of animals, Noah would not have to bring every, two of every animal for the breeds to survive, right? I've discovered, I didn't know this before, but animal, uh, animals like llamas and camels can interbreed. Maybe you didn't know that. I didn't know that, but apparently they can. You wouldn't need like German shepherds and labs and poodles and chihuahuas. You just needed dogs, and they would, you know, they could breed, they could interbreed, or they would breed from that, that you know, the... Uh, you wouldn't need all these, every single animal. You'd only need two of each family of animals, those which cannot interbreed with each other. And if you narrow it down to that, there's only about a thousand families of animals that cannot or have not interbred. Um, what about dinosaurs? Because people, you know, the, the, the evolutionists will tell you what dinosaurs were long before man, and yet, uh, you know, that's not true. Um, they've discovered dinosaur tracks with men, tra- you know, male tracks and stuff next, next to each other. And what about the dinosaurs? How could you fit a brontosaurus on the ark? I mean, that would take up probably a good size, good portion of the ark. You know what's interesting? You know, they found dinosaur eggs, right? You know how big those dinosaurs are? They're not the size of Volkswagens. They're the size of ostrich eggs. They're just, they're not that big. And so who says that the dinosaurs, and for that matter, any of the other animals had to be adults? Who says that? They could have been younger animals. In fact, younger animals would make more sense, right? Because they need less space. And if after the flood, you wanted them to reproduce and repopulate the earth, wouldn't you want to get the youngest species, the healthiest, and just, you know, that would... That would maximize their reproductive abilities after the flood. But beyond all that, Noah didn't have to figure it out. He didn't, he didn't have to go, well, I wonder if I should bring that animal. You know, which one should I bring? He didn't have to go with a net and try to catch fish, or fish, <laughs> catch, you know, birds or anything like that, or butterflies. God says here, two of every kind shall come to you. God's going to take care of the details. He didn't have to worry. They're going to come to you. God's going to bring them. All that to say, you can look at all the studies on the ark, and there's lots of different Christian ministries um, that have done a very good uh, study on animals and the size of the ark and all that, and the, the food needed for that. Um, there's more than enough room in the ark. There was more than enough room for animals, for food, and for eight people. Verse 22. This is an important verse. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. That is a very important verse. Why is that important? Well, this is why. You and I, we know that we're all descended from Adam, right? We're, I mean, Adam and Eve, they're, they're, the, they're the start of the human race, but we're even more closely descended from Noah. 
You think about this. What if Noah had procrastinated in building the ark? Ah, you know, I got 120 years, man. I'll just, uh, you know, I'll start on a year 119 or whatever. I'll start on it, you know. Um, what if he had procrastinated? What if he had only partially obeyed? You know, I, I don't know about this. You know, I'm going to just do what I think is, you know, I'll just do what I think is right. What if he had only partially obeyed? Noah's complete obedience, it had ramifications that stretch all the way down to you and I today. Because if he hadn't obeyed the Lord, we wouldn't even be here today. We wouldn't be here today if he hadn't fully completed, completely obeyed the Lord. Sometimes, you know, the Lord speaks to our hearts. You're reading a study or the Holy Spirit speaking to you or just so the Lord lays something on your heart and you know that that's something that you should do. I want to encourage you this morning. It's important for you to completely and fully obey the Lord and whatever he tells you to do because you don't know the ramifications down the road of obeying or alternately of not obeying. Very important. And praise God, Noah did all that God had commanded him to do so that you and I could be here today even studying this. Hebrews 11 talks about Noah. It says, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his family by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Noah was divinely warned of things not seen. What things were not seen? Well, can you imagine his neighbors? Here's Noah. He's cutting down some trees, gopher trees, whatever they are, and he's, and he's starting to build this ark. Can you imagine his neighbors walking up to Noah? Noah, what are you doing? I'm building an ark. What's an ark? Well, it's a ship. It's built, you know, it's going to protect us from a flood. Oh, wait a minute, Noah. What's a flood? Well, a flood is when, you know, you get too much rainfall. Wait a minute, Noah. What are you talking about, man? What's rain? They had not experienced these things prior to the flood. He was divinely warned of things not yet seen. And yet by faith, he obeyed the Lord God. But can you imagine what he endured for those years that he was constructing the ark? Now, a couple weeks ago, we went through the genealogy of Adam to Noah And what we discovered was that Methuselah, he's the oldest man that was alive, uh, that ever lived, 969 years. Methuselah was Noah's grandfather. He was alive until the year of the flood. Until the year that the flood, Methuselah was still alive. Enoch's father, Methuselah, we talked a lot about him too. um, He was a prophet, according to Jude, right? He prophesied. And Enoch named his son Methuselah, and Methuselah's name literally means his death shall bring. And it was a prophecy, obviously, or or it's inferred anyways, a prophecy that the year that Methuselah died would be the year that God's judgment would would come upon the earth. Now, think about that. So so Methuselah's alive up up until the year of the flood, and Noah, it's 120 years is when God said, you know, was when God said, I'm giving all flesh about 120 years. So Noah had this time to build this ark. Did Methuselah help him build it? It's possible. We don't know. The scriptures doesn't tell us. But if Noah knew that in the year that Methuselah died, God's judgment would come. Can you imagine Noah? He's up there on one of these tall beams, you know, 45 feet up high. And you could see Methuselah, you know, 968 years old or 950 years old or whatever. Hey, Noah, 
Can I help you with that beam? Can you imagine what? No, hey, no, 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 Grandpa, just stay down there. You can hand me some tools if I need them. You know, uh, you can go get me a cup of coffee, whatever. But you know, just stay on the ground. You know, don't climb up here. You know, because the day, he, the year he dies, man, that's when God's judgment is coming. So you just stay. You're you're fine. <laughs> How's your heart? <laughs> can you imagine? I mean, we don't know. We can infer that, right? Um, so did Methuselah, or excuse me, did Noah have help? Maybe, maybe not. Did his three sons help him? It's possible. Again, Scripture doesn't tell us. He may have built it alone, all by himself for 120 years, just building it all by himself. He could have hired somebody. We don't know. But for all that time, you know, in Second Peter 2.5, tells us that Noah, during that time, he was a preacher of righteousness. And if you can think about that, He's building something that nobody understands what he's building it, and they certainly don't understand why. They've never seen it. They've never seen a flood. They don't know anything about rain. Can you imagine the mocking that he would have endured, being the butt of many jokes, the Noah jokes, you know, for about 120 years, and yet he faithfully persisted doing what God told him to do. Chapter 7, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. I think it's significant that God didn't say go into the ark, but he said come into the ark. You see, if you say go to someone, that means you're sending them to a place, right, where you're not. But if you say come, that means you're there. You come, come to this place, right? Well, God was with them in the ark. God was already in the ark. God's like, come into the ark, Noah. I think that's, to me, that just jumped out at me. The Lord was with them in the ark. Because I think of Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 2. It says, but now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. Man, we have God's promise to be with us. Now, it doesn't mean we're not going to go through the floods. We're not going to go through the fires. You know, the, when I think of the floods, I think of things that just totally overwhelm me. You know, you're just like you're unindated. Lord, I, I can't handle this. This is so much. Or the fiery trials that happen in our lives. A loved one passes away or something happens. There's this, there's this terrible trial in our lives. God's promised his abiding presence with us through that. I think it's beautiful. Verse 2, you shall take with you seven of each of every clean animal, a male and his female, of two animals that are unclean, a male and his female, and also seven each of birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. Now, evidently, there's a distinction that Moses understood, or Noah understood between clean and unclean animals prior to the giving of the law of Moses. And uh, so why six or seven of each animal? Well, it's possibly the additional animals of those certain types. Maybe it was to allow for faster reproduction of the birds. I don't know. But especially if some of them would be sacrificed after the flood, and we know that they were. So that's probably why. Verse 4. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. I will destroy from the face of the earth of all living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters were on the earth. So Noah, with his sons, his wives, and his sons' wives, went into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, of everything that creeps on the earth, two by two they went into the ark, 
to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. Can you imagine during those seven days? You know, Noah's, the people, his neighbors been watching Noah building the ark. And I mean, there's always a hammer, you know, there's all this noise and stuff. Um, and uh, during that time, now all of a sudden there's this eerie silence. There's no more hammering. The noise of the animals is probably muted inside the ark. And so for seven days, there's, there's, there's this stillness probably. And then judgment comes. Well, I think it's just interesting because the rapture of the church is going to be followed not by seven days, but seven years. And it's a time for that well, men will have an opportunity to repent. During those seven days, men probably had an opportunity to repent and go into the ark with Noah, but we know from the record no one does. God's so merciful. But then it happened. Look at verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up. And the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was on the earth forty days and forty nights. Now God had prolonged his judgment, but when it happened, man, it happened in one day. Now the skeptic would say, How could floodwaters cover the Himalayas? I mean, you think of how tall some of these mountain ranges are on the earth. There's not enough water on the planet to cover all these flood or to cover all these um these uh, mountains. And they would say, and that's why a lot of people say, well, if there was any truth to the flood in the first place, it had to have been a localized flood. Well, again, like I mentioned earlier, the problem, sin, wickedness, and corruption was worldwide, all flesh. So the judgment would have had to have also been worldwide. But if Noah's flood was a local flood, as some people say, why would he have to build an ark? I mean, why not just tell uh, Noah, hey, leave this place and go to another place. Like God told, remember Sodom? Or excuse me, Lot. God said, Lot, I want you to leave the plains of Sodom because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to judge this place. It's going to be destroyed. God could have just said that to Noah. Just go to another place. But he didn't. Why bring animals onto the ark if they could have just migrated to higher ground elsewhere? If Noah's flood was local, and here's a very interesting thing. Why do well over 200, I mean over 200 different cultures, the world over, have a worldwide flood account in their history. China has one, Persia, the Aztecs, the Incas, the Pacific Islanders, South America, the Middle Eastern countries. They all have a flood legend uh, in their history. And we will talk about that next week. We're going to take a closer look at this next week. We see the problem for the skeptics. How could the water cover the Himalayas? Well, they look at everything from a uniformitarianism viewpoint. Uniformitarianism is the theory that changes in the Earth's crust during geological history have resulted from the action of continuous and uniform processes over uh, the definition of the say, but over millions and millions and millions of years, slowly moving things. You know, all things exist then as they do now. That, that's the, I mean, how could the water cover what we see today? But you think, but you see, Scripture provides a clue that things were vastly different before the flood. Remember back in verse 13, I said this is significant. The end of all flesh has come before me. In chapter 6, verse 13. The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. See, not only would God destroy all flesh, which he did, but the earth that then existed as they knew it would be destroyed. In 2 Peter 3, verse 3 
through 6, Peter says this, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this, they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. This is a statistic that I came across. If the earth's surface was completely flat, if it had no really high, high mountains, you know, like the Himalayas and no, no deep deep ocean basins, there would be enough water to cover the entire globe 8,000 feet deep. That'd be that, that's how much water. Noah's flood didn't have to cover the Himalayas. I believe that it formed the Himalayas, the flood itself, as it also formed the Alps, the Rockies, the Appalachians, the Andes, you name it. It's interesting. These mountains all have ocean bottom sediments on the tops of their... In fact, Mount Everest has got clam fossils on the top. Very fascinating. So what happened? Well, we're told that the fountains of the deep burst up forth, and then the windows of heaven, you know, that the, the water came down. It, was, it wasn't just rain, you know, torrential rain, but water came up from the ground, burst forth, the Bible says. So there you have this total undulation of the planet worldwide. Now, there's a theory that uh, a guy put forth, his name is Dr. Walter Brown. He's got a PhD in mechanical engineering from MIT. He has got a bachelor's of science from West Point. He was the former chief of science and technological studies at the Air War College and associate professor at the U.S. Air Academy. So he's not a slouch. The guy knows he's not a dummy. Um, this guy has come up with a theory. It's known as the hydroplate theory. And uh, I came across it actually just recently. It was watched, there was a, there's a movie that where they refer to it. It's not a movie about it, but they refer to it on the Dove Channel. If you guys get the Dove Channel, there's a, there's a thing about the Noah's Flood in there. It's, it's, it was interesting. They, they talk about this theory. And so it kind of piqued my interest. So I went and I looked it up. And it's out there on the Internet. You can read his hydroplate theory. It's about 500 pages long. So I didn't read it all. But... Uh, it's, I'm going to kind of try to boil it down. And maybe you've heard of it before, but this is what it basically is. He thinks that the earth's crust rested on a bed of water. And then the water with the tides, which, you know, the earth, that, that crust was like floating. And every time that tide was going up and down, you know, day and night uh, or twice a day, whatever, that it was pumping pressure in this water. And then the day of the flood when the fountains of the deep were broken up, that this crust, the earth's crust, it ruptured. And he, and he says it ruptured at a spread of three miles per second. And within a couple hours, the entire globe was ruptured. And I'm going to read a little bit, and it gets kind of technical, but I just, just bear with me. It says, thus the initial rupture of the earth's crust under this view would hurl rocks and sediments in gigantic muddy fountains of water, which then led to intense precipitation consistent with Genesis 7 for the 40-day period. These fountains would eventually be followed by many large volcanic eruptions in the ring of fire around the Pacific, all with the force of Krakatoa. And then it goes into how big Krakatoa was. It was a big, big thing in 18, uh, uh, 1883. It says, similarly, during the flood, 
on top of the waterborne sediments and sometimes mixed with them, vast layers of magma would be poured out or catastrophically exploded in the atmosphere. And then it says, the rain in the first 40 days of the flood involved not only the return to the earth of the jets of superheated steam ejected into the atmosphere, which would partly fall as hail and snow, but great quantities of rock debris as well. Many fossils could have formed within the first few weeks of the flood in this model. In the next 110 days, further vast layering, scouring, relayering of the continents would occur until the ravages of the flood under the ravages of the floodwaters. The final catastrophic drainage of the waters occurred at the end of the continental drift phase when uh, after massive tectonic upheaval, the land eventually reappeared as the earth's crust found a new equilibrium. It is significant that Genesis 8.3 speaks of the waters returning from off the earth, literally going and returning in the Hebrew. And uh, again, it's a, it's a big, it's a, it's a very interesting theory. Um, he talks about, you know, if you look at the, the, the continents, how they look like they kind of can fit together. And, you know, scientists think that, you know, it was all one big continent called Pangaea. And then there's this tectonic drift, you know, over millions and millions of years or whatever. And they drifted apart and all this stuff. Well, he looks at it and he's got, he, he has uh, another theory, which is, when I when I saw it, I'm like, yeah, it makes more sense. Um, you know, he's talked about how Australia doesn't even fit into that pattern, and and how it looked like they had to distort the map to get them to fit. You know, uh, but if you and he has this map, and you go in and look at it, he's got this map that shows what's known as the Mid Atlantic Ridge in the middle of the ocean. It's just, there's this ridge in the middle of the ocean, and it follows the 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 continents just almost like perfectly and so he's got a theory that that, that there was this upheaval and then these the continents actually drifted away from it but anyways um, it's a theory okay nobody was there so it's a theory um, uh, and by the way this guy is vilified by the science establishment they do not like this guy um, because he definitely challenges a lot of uh, established um, uh, thoughts or whatever um, but. In light of the of a lot of things doing, dealing with a flood, it answers a lot of questions. So I, I don't know. I'm not that smart, but it's very interesting. Um, you know, we talked about in the beginning about this vapor canopy when we talked in, in the beginning of, of Genesis that there was this vapor canopy and that, that that was the water that came down. You know, again, we don't really know. And uh, I'm sure there's more theories than those. But uh, in any event, the earth as we as they knew it was totally, totally changed as a result of the flood. How exactly the mechanics? I don't know, but it was totally changed as a result. Verse 13, chapter 7. On the very same day, Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind. Every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two of all flesh, which is in which is the breath of life. So those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Now Noah was building the ark for about 120 years. Maybe some people say 100 years, but I think it was probably 120. He was preaching righteousness to the world around him by not only his actions, building the ark, but I'm sure his conversations. No, what are you doing? You know, and he, and he was preaching righteousness. And for seven, <clears throat> excuse me, for seven days before the flood, there was an opportunity to still enter the ark. But there came a time when the door was shut by the Lord. After that, there was no more going back. No one was going to open that door. The Lord God had shut it. 
You know, I think about that when it, when you're sharing the gospel with people. Don't ever give up sharing the gospel. Don't ever up, pr- give up praying for your, your, your loved one that hasn't come to faith in the Lord. Because there's always an opportunity. That door is still open. But the warning is there does come a time. And only God knows it. But there comes a time when that door is going to shut. And then there won't be any entering in. Verse 17, now the flood was on the earth 40 days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. You know what's interesting about that, the 15 cubits? The draft of Noah's Ark probably would have been 15 cubits. That's the amount of height of the Ark underneath the water. And so, uh, you know, if it was about mid, midships, whatever. Um, and so it was, there was enough water that it didn't run aground on top of Mount Everest, if Mount Everest had been there. You know, it, 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 it was just enough to go to float above even the highest mountain, whatever that, however high those were at that time. Continuing on, it says, And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. We're going to go into the rest of uh, the flood account, which is chapters 9 and 10, um, next week. But there was something that kind of was really just, as I was studying this, and I was, I was looking at that theory, and, and again, it's just a theory, the hydroplate theory, but um, just considering what was it like before the flood? What, what was the earth like? And we have hints from going through earlier in Genesis about what it was like, but what they knew at that time, it was after that day, the one day after that day, everything changed. Everything changed. The world as they knew it changed. I want to read this to you. Towards the end of the Great Tribulation, it's recorded in the book of Revelation, chapter 16, verse 17 through 21. It says, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Listen to this. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, since the plague was exceedingly great. Listen, the people of Noah's day, even Noah himself, probably didn't understand the full scope of God's judgment that was coming. I mean, God said, you know, I'm going to destroy the earth, all living things. But the scope of it probably didn't even sink in with Noah himself, and certainly not with the people around Noah. They didn't understand the judgment that was approaching. The world that they knew at that time would be changed forever. And towards the end of the Great Tribulation, the earth as you and I know it today is going to be changed forever. Following the Great Tribulation... Jesus Christ, oh, by the way, 
So, you know, one of our one of the guys that was working on the place, he just came back from Hawaii. I'm like, wow, I was kind of jealous. He was there when it was really cold and stuff. You know, after the rapture of the church, if you have, do you have any of you have timeshares in Florida? Or I mean, uh, in uh, Hawaii? Okay. Well, if you did, at the end of the, if, if the rapture of the church occurs, hope I pray none of you are here after that because hopefully we'll all be there. Um, but man, that's not a place to vacation. Maybe for six years, maybe it'll be, still be okay for a while. But you don't want to be in Hawaii on the seventh year after the rapture of the church because the Bible says all islands are going to be gone. They're going to be dis- they're going to be gone. So just. Just, I'll share that. I'll leave that with you. Free advice. But none of us are going to be there, right? Yeah, right. We're going to be in heaven with Jesus. Listen, following the great tribulation, Jesus Christ is going to usher in a thousand-year millennium, his reign on earth, physically on the earth. He's going to reign and rule um, from Jerusalem. And the Bible says that you and I are going to reign and rule with Jesus. Mount Zion, and when we were in Ezekiel, we talked about it. It was, it's a, it was a great study, but Mount Zion... Jerusalem, the temple, it's going to be the only mountain on earth is what I firmly believe. It's going to be the only mountain on earth. New Jerusalem will be lifted up above all other cities and nations. In other words, life as we know it, the world as we know it is going to be totally different. Listen to this, Isaiah 11, verse 6. The wolf also shall dwell with a lamb. It's speaking about this time. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. Isaiah 11, verse 8, the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. We talked about that Wednesday. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. You you don't want your kids playing with the cobras today. But in the millennium, it would be okay. Hey, son, I brought you a cobra for your birthday. Here, have fun. Isaiah 65, verse 20, No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child should die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. You know, people find it so hard to imagine because we have this paradigm that we live in right now. The earth, life expectancies, you know, the, 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 you know, the animal kingdom. I mean, we have this paradigm that we live in right now. And uh, it's the way we know it. But you know what? It's going to be totally different in the millennium. Just like the people in Noah's day, they had their paradigm. You know, hey, we don't even, what's rain? We don't know rain is flood. What are you building a boat? What's a boat do? You know, they had no concept of that prior to the flood. It was a totally different paradigm, but things completely changed. You know, some Christians, they will allegorize away the millennium because it's just too, it just boggles the mind. What do you, it just doesn't make sense. It, just, it doesn't fit what we see around us today. And so they will allegor, they'll make it a story. It's, it's a symbol of Christian life today, but that's not true. God's returning. The millennium is going to happen. You know, just, I just, that's what sunk into me when I did this study is, man, what we look at today, what we think is normal, there's going to be a new normal when Jesus Christ returns. Now, we, as I've shared earlier, I think we're living in the days of Noah again. You can look at the, how it was then and you look at how it is today, and I definitely think we're living in the days of Noah. Noah was a preacher of righteousness during that time, and he faithfully completed all that God commanded him to do. He was 100% obedient. There was nothing that he didn't leave undone that God had told him to do. I want to encourage you with that this morning. Because I think it's going to be pretty soon when that door is going to be shut, when I think when you and I are going to be raptured out of here, and then that's when, you know, this judgment strikes on this earth. And so 
hopefully I encourage you. This is a, to me, it was an encouraging, but it was also eye-opening um, when you think about um, how God's going to change things with the millennium. Why don't you stand up? And uh, because of Noah's obedience, it was the result of the salvation his wife, his children, his wife's children, the animals, you and me are alive today because of Noah and his obedience. And I pray that we would be obedient just like Noah was. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. And uh, Father, I thank you for the account of Noah. And Lord, the lesson that we can learn. And, and Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit has been speaking to each one of us today. Father, if we are in a period where we're just kind of half following you, we're not fully obedient, Lord. We're not fully submitted to you, Lord. I pray that today that this would be a wake-up call for each of us. Lord, for those of us that are, uh, we're just, we're weary because, Lord, we're, we're amongst unbelievers. Maybe we have family members and it's just been so hard and we're just, we're just growing weary. Lord, I pray that we would not grow weary, but that we would continue to be faithful to preach righteousness, to be an example, Lord, and to pray for them. And that, Lord, we pray that, uh, Lord, it's not your will that any should perish, but that all should come to salvation. And Lord, we pray for our family members, our our loved ones, Lord. We pray for our, our coworkers, our community, that they would come to faith in you. And Lord, may we be your instruments uh, to be used by you um, to reach this lost world. So we thank you for this message this morning. We love you and we praise you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.